Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, joined once again by 3MA founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello, hello, hello. So, one of the defining features of this week, and really the last few years, is a conviction or a hope that there's some kind of hidden truth that'll come out and lead to some kind of redemptive justice. And a lot of that energy was focused on and fed by news media. And while I think it's too reductive to say that there's any one reason for the conviction that the news can reverse or transform the politics and culture of a society, I don't know. I do feel like a lot of this fixation goes back to Watergate and the mythology that built up around it. So this week, Troy, I thought we'd consider two movies about investigative journalism, 1976's All the President's Men and 1999's The Insider, or to put it another way, we take a look at the apotheosis of Hollywood's journalism fetish, and then we look at Michael Mann's attempt to sound its death now. Uh, Troy, here, right at the top of the show, what did you make of these two movies? What were the most salient contrasts for you as you watched them? Um, the All the President's Men is a lot more boring than I remember it being. It is, frankly, a very dull uh, inside baseball movie that requires you to know a lot about what is going on in Watergate. Uh, it's very much a movie of its time and of its period, and I don't think it has aged uh, very well at all, leaving aside its position on the role of the media and journalism and politics and space, leaving that aside, which we can get into, which is really the important thing. Uh, I do not think the movie ages uh, very well, especially if you're kind of only a little bit interested in Watergate. The Insider is... Probably, I mean, you said this on Twitter uh, the other day, probably man's best movie. And I think it is just an outstanding film uh, that was robbed at the Oscars repeatedly in almost every category. Um, it is uh, well shot, well performed. It, even if you know uh, the history and the story and what's going on, it is very tense and it's full of uh, drama and real human characters. Um, th these are both very similar in that they both, they're not trying to be balanced. They are, they are, they're on somebody's side. Uh, they're really telling one side of what is going on. You don't see the antagonist, which is kind of the typical thing for these movies, right? You you don't see in much detail the people they're going after. And, um, you don't see the Nixon White House and what they're doing. You don't see the tobacco executives and what they're doing. Just like in uh, Spotlight, you don't see what the Catholic Church is doing and plotting uh, to stop the Boston Globe's investigations. And Aaron Brockovich, you don't see what the, uh, you know, that's not a journalist movie, but you don't see what the chemical company is doing and they're uh, plotting. It's about the investigation. It is about the uncovering of the truth and how that is told. Um and one other distinction I think is worth knowing is that, I mean, All the President's Men really is about uncovering the truth and finding out what is going on, whereas The Insider, you everybody knows what the truth is, and you have someone saying <clears throat> what things are. Truth is not the question. It is, will it be told? Which is a very different question than All the President's Men. Yeah, I think that's really the salient difference between the two movies' worldviews in, in some ways. All the president's men is very confident that if the powers that be in the newsroom decide a story is worth telling, it will be told and justice will reign. Whereas the insider ultimately culminates in a much more systemic warning 
in some ways, right? About the incentives that underlie journalism and the changes in how journalism outfits calculate risk. And in some ways, I think the insider is unpacking something that always existed, even in this heyday that all the president's men is evoking, but is certainly trying to point out that these concerns have gotten more pointed here at the end of the 90s. Uh, the risks are much greater to the story getting out. Yeah, I mean, it's we want to talk about these movies in detail in each turn and go through them. So let's start with All the President's Men, which is which stars, you know, it's an, first of all, both these movies have amazing casts. I mean, it's just outstanding when you look at, I mean, the people who are in these movies, uh, both of them. Um, we have uh, in All the President's Men, there's, of course, Redford and Hoffman as Woodward and Bernstein. Uh You've got uh, Robards as Bradley and Jack Warden as Rosenfeld uh, and Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat. Um, and it's, and you know, and a lot of other great names pop up in lesser roles, uh, Ned Beatty and Ephraim Abraham and all these performers. And so it, it is a very well acted movie. And it is also in many ways this time machine. Um, the first thing that I noticed when I was watching it was how loud the newsroom was. Yeah. Everyone's working in the space. I mean, everyone's jammed together. I've never worked in a newsroom like that. I can't remember ever working in a place like that. And everyone's on the phone. They talk at the same time. And the typewriters make all of these really, really loud noises. Um, and you can see what everybody else is doing. And Wolverine and Bernstein have this early confrontation over, oh, you're writing my copy. No, you wrote it wrong. That's bad writing. You how you should do it. You haven't been here long enough, blah, blah. Uh, this tension between the two that gets resolved very, very quickly when, you know, uh, their editor says, you two cops are going to be working together on this case uh, sort of thing. Uh, even though there's really not a lot of difference between them. They don't come across well as distinct personalities compared to The Insider where uh, the two lead uh, journalists where the producer and the journalist have very different approaches and very different personalities. Here, Robert and Bernstein are kind of they're a machine. They work together. Uh, they, they fit very well. But it's a film where that kind of stops and starts at a weird bit. Yeah. It starts, it starts with a break-in and stops with not, not the, even the resignation. It stops like two years before anything. It stops on, on inauguration day of Nixon's inauguration when there's still, the story isn't completely told yet. We don't know anything. We don't know about, we don't know about the tapes. We don't know about uh, all of the payoffs. We don't know about how deep the corruption is. We just know about one small part of uh, the Watergate corruption. The fact that um, Mitchell is serving as a bag man funneling campaign money to other people. I think that's kind of the big takeaway. And it's kind of anticlimactic. But the idea is we have these two journalists chasing the story based on a few little odd leads here and there. They piece it together through a lot of uncooperative witnesses and get it through an editorial staff, some of whom are very suspicious that the story will ever amount to anything, with a, a very familiar journalistic call. If this was really a story, wouldn't other people be talking about it too? Like, no one else has talked about this, so it can't be news. Which I'm sure you've seen a lot in your career. Uh, that, you know, that's why there's much similar coverage in a lot of beats that everyone agrees what the stories are. Um, so the fact that no, the New York Times isn't reporting on this in the same depth 
The editors don't think it's a story. So there's that kind of resistance. But generally, everyone's right behind it. They stand behind the story. And then the movie ends with these little epilogues, <laughs> with these, and there's little, like, typewritten epilogues. All these dates, all of these other criminal things happened after the movie ends. Oh, and then Nixon resigns. It's like, it is a very weird movie um, where all the procedure is the shoe leather journalism chasing down the very first step of this story. Um, and uh, I, I think people sometimes believe, I, I, I saw the movie long, long ago when I rewatched it. I forgot how early the movie ends in the Watergate story. Yeah, it's a very it's a very odd decision about how to tell the story. And I and I think that has to be down to the fact that it is a movie made in 1976. Like this is all this is basically a these are all recent events. Yeah. And so to your point, it's presuming that yeah, you've obviously been obsessed with the story for, you know, a year and a half. And so of course, we don't need to take you through this blow by blow of when the story hit the national consciousness and began to bring down the presidency, but it does make it a more, it, it, it leaves it a very odd portrait of the scandal because you could watch this movie and not have any idea what, like, why was any of this bad? Like what did Nixon or all the president's men, what did they actually do wrong? In this in in the worldview of this movie, I think the closest we get is, um, you know, he both the character of Deep Throat, uh, who was what assist, assistant director of the FBI, yeah. Mark Felt. Yeah, um, he's a really useful storytelling device in that he lends this air of drama and mystery to what is otherwise, as you say, a very shoe leather reporting type story. And two, uh, Halbrook's performance as Deep Throat makes him somebody who can sort of espouse the exposition and explain the, the stakes of what happened here. And there's a scene where he begins to get frustrated with, with Woodward because Woodward doesn't seem to be seeing the big picture, but I think the movie doesn't either. What, what deep throat is trying to unpack here is that they've uncovered evidence of this massive, what's called a rat fucking operation, right? Where you are, you are basically sabotaging uh, campaigns within the enemy camp, not necessarily because you're running in opposition to them, but because you are trying to set the terms of what the election will be, who you're actually going to be going up against. And he's trying to explain how, like, by the time the Watergate burglars are caught breaking in, there is certainly no help required uh, to defeat McGovern. That's that's not what this is. That's not what this is about. It is instead a closing stage of a long campaign to basically influence democratic politics and ensure that Nixon gets his chosen opponent and is and that the Democrats are sort of forced to have the election on his terms. But explaining how all this ties together doesn't it doesn't really happen in the movie. Instead, we have a lot of allusions to Ed Muskie crying in the snow and explaining how that moment was sort of brought to you by the Nixon campaign, but you don't have any sense of why does it matter that this uh, this politician we've never heard of Ed Muskie? Why does it matter that he was sort of hamstrung by this, this letter uh, that, that was supposedly written? Uh, why does it matter that he dropped out of the race and uh, McGovern 
was able to w- w- was able to win win the primary. The movie doesn't really make a case for that, and I think it ends up making a kind of a weird celebration of journalism saving the country without ever making it clear what the country has been saved from. It is especially given the last you know few years of uh, you know a government that was an American government that seems to just defy the law and uh, regular norms, political norms, on a whim, without ever being called to account, very openly and brazenly. And you look at the crime that the crime that they're uncovering here in this movie, it's very small potatoes, right? Yeah. It is, you know, this is this isn't even a hatch act violation. This is money from political donors going to the rat fucking operation. That's really what it is. Uh, that, that might even be legal now. I don't understand all American campaign <laughs> yeah, law. Of course, yeah. But it's very but through you know it's it, through a political action committee, some of this ends up with Project Veritas. That is probably legal under <laughs> campaign rules now. Uh it might have been legal then. Who even knows? Um and there's all kinds of other illegal stuff uh, going on. But it's just it, it, it seems like a very small potatoes crime. And I mean, Deep Throat is kind of an interesting character in this movie. First of all, I mean, Hal Holbrook's just amazing. He's a fantastic actor and has long been one of my favorites. But you go through the, they go through this, this two hours of this movie, and he's so frustrated. At the very end, he's almost a deus ex machina. He says, you idiots, here's what's going on. And then the movie wraps up. It's like, oh, that's what the story is. After, after they go through all of this work, he kind of has to, like, explain, walk them through the line, what they've discovered. It's like he's telling a bedtime story to some very stupid kids. Um, so he's, I, I'm, I'm not sure if um, how history understands Deep Throat and his importance and his centrality to the Watergate investigation uh, at the Post. But certainly in this movie, Really, only only appears uh, two or three times. He is kind of the central driver of the plot. Um, of course, nineteen seventy six. We didn't know who Deep Throat. They didn't know who Deep Throat was. Um, they didn't know that he was somebody who had an axe to grind against Nixon, uh, who had you know. Nora Ephron had not spent twenty years telling uh, Deep Throat's identity at parties. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, just... Following her unsuccessful marriage with Carl Bernstein. It's just amazing uh, how people knew but didn't know. It's just hilarious. Um, but we, so we have we have stands out as this character trying to explain things and explain what the stakes are. Uh, but I mean, even his editor, it's hard to get a sense unless you know. I mean, I know quite, I know a little bit of the Watergate investigation. I certainly watched a lot of documentaries on it on the Watergate scandal. But watching this movie. I can understand if somebody was coming into it and was asking, I don't understand what's happening. I don't know why I should care, but everyone's acting like it's very important. And that's kind of the sense that the movie wants to convey. And it's very much the classic Woodward and Bernstein idea that it's the job of journalism to uncover all of these truths. And unless you're writing, unless you're you're trying to to write a, a, a new book, uh, then it, everyone should know that the, the the truth is, and it's up to journalists to find that. Um, I think Bernstein's done a better job of holding up that side than Woodward has, uh, but that's just my own yeah. personal opinion. Um, and this is very much a story about 
besides Deep Throat and, you know, what is what is the scandal here? It is about a newspaper taking a chance, I guess. It's about Ben Bradley, played by Jason Robards, another fantastic actor, trusting his guys. Uh, you know, he's the Nixonites deny everything, and his response is, we stand by the story. Based on, it seems very little. Um, and I'm wondering if it's just, you know, Bradley's fit of peak at that moment, that how dare you tell us what to do, because uh, we never liked you. Uh, sort of thing, but it's that, that's it's besides you know the Watergate stuff on the journalist side, it is a story about an editorial team sticking together and backing a hunch. Yeah, I think so. I, I do want to make a case though for um, the things this movie does really well, yeah, is that I think it captures so well. In, in some ways, the movie never moves beyond this point to, to its uh, discredit, but. I love how it opens where this entire thing seems so weird and so small potatoes that it just flies under the radar. There's that great scene. Not only is the entire caper getting discovered, just kind of a hilarious farce as the dudes are caught in the Watergate while their lookout desperately tries to warn them. It's kind of shades of rear window, right? Where uh, you see the cops swarming through the Democratic offices as these guys try to hide under a desk. Uh, but then you you cut to Woodward appearing at, like being at court, just following the day's arraignments, and here comes this gallery of weird Watergate burglars who are all kind of like trying to fly under the radar and just kind of nonchalantly like plead out, and then you have these oddly well connected lawyers, uh, you know overseeing their case and i think one of the things the movie captures well here is that these things don't often the, the this idea that this thing does not seem like a big deal at the start and in some ways it is just the oddity of it that catches their attention now admittedly this is already kind of a distortion right if you like in the history uh the entire thing basically had fallen apart immediately because Wright Patman, uh, who was a powerful U.S. congressman at the time, had already, like, he understood that the Watergate burglars were carrying around money they shouldn't have been carrying around and was trying to launch an investigation on his own that was probably going to cover the, the same ground that Woodward and Bernstein did. He got shut down as the investigation was going well. But from the Washington Post side, I do like this notion of it is just a normal day at court with something abnormal happening. And that's how the story begins, right? Is, is a reporter just getting a little bit curious and how for about half this movie, you've got people just following threads, but not even sure that there's anything real attached to it. Just like a series of oddities that they're trying to sort of put into a picture. And it's as they are put into the picture that you start getting a sense that, whoa, there's something actually much larger here, as ridiculous and small potatoes as, as this seems to be. It's all connected to something much larger. Yeah, I mean, it's... I go back, you know, with Deep Throat saying that the, the, these are not bright guys and things just got out of hand. I mean, that's what happens... Because you're not thinking for every sending high-powered lawyers to a tiny arraignment. That's something you should think about. What, what will this look like if the president's lawyer shows up 
at this little arraignment. You know, send some other guy to do that. There's this giant firm. You can send somebody nobody knows. Um, yeah, a, a lot of it is, you know, just these very, just finding receipts. And what is this a receipt for? And going down to Florida to pick up that folder and see that harried lawyer played by Ned Beatty uh, to try to figure out uh, what this money is for. Who are these people? Tracking down names. Um, and, you know, just a, a lot of the, the, the really good reporter stuff is the, uh, I think about um, Bernstein, Dustin Hoffman goes to that uh, woman's house, uh, Judy Miller's house, and just sits there having bad coffee, trying to talk her into saying something about her boss, about, um, you just called the, the, the bookkeeper, I guess, uh, but Judy Miller's the character. And she's just trying to get her to say something about what is going on. Because even though she, she's not high up in the operation, all she does is she, but she knows where the money is going and she knows who gets paid what. Um, it's a very small scene. Now, somehow, I mean, Jane Alexander, who plays the role, got, got an Oscar nomination for that very small wow. bit uh, as a supporting actor, which I thought is... I've read that like, wow, that is very weird that, you know, she'd get it for that little. Uh, but she did. And I think it's a very good scene because it shows she never really says a whole lot. She says enough to move Bernstein on to the next place uh, where to go. But she's tense through the entire thing. And a lot of it is him just trying to infer. Uh, there's the scenes where they're, they have all they have are initials. Sorry, who are these initials? What does this stand for? Who are these people? Um, and of course, the great the scene where they have to, where their editor has to explain to them and explain to them who people are, who is Haldeman? Haldeman is, uh, and that some of that might be for the audience, but hopefully, considering how literally they explain, probably not. There's a lot of there's a lot of really good j journalism stuff in here, but stuff that is still very, I mean, at least the desire to do things and the whole, like you said, the the how they start with. A small arraignment and things just look weird and it becomes something more i mean that's just that's just good reporting instinct uh it's not clear to me where bernstein comes into the story though that's how woodward gets into it it's never clear to me where, because he's apparently working on something similar at the same time and they end up joining together it's never clear to me where bernstein gets involved in the story i know he wants to do more stuff he's working on some state profiles or something for the 72 election. And then he ends up on this. Yeah, he, um, it, it definitely is a thing where it is dispensed with pretty quickly in internal newsroom chatter, where part of it is Dustin Hoffman just plays him as kind of an annoying, uh, nosy kind of guy who just keeps getting in the middle of things. And they're, they finally just kind of in frustration, throw him at this shit. Uh, because maybe it's not anything, but he's at least a little more seasoned than Woodward is. And so why not like throw this troublemaker who at least knows what he's doing on this uh, on the story with somebody who's not that much above a cub reporter. But yeah, it's it's not super clear, like what the internal newsroom dynamics there are or what what are these dudes supposed to be working on? Um, because no sooner have they started working on the story than we're just fully off into unraveling the conspiracy. Um, I think the other thing, and I think this is why this movie has held up its reputation as a classic, is that for me, 
this thing works. This movie still fundamentally works as a tonal piece, if not a narrative piece. Hmm. And what I mean by that is if you look at what actually happens in this movie, as you've laid out, there's not a whole lot. But if you look at how this movie feels, I think it feels much like the Nixon era must have felt to people. It evoked something. So a a sort of dread that was in the air that I think is much more identifiable to us now than it was maybe in the eighties or nineties. But this notion that, you know, Washington is a city full of, um, I don't know people like you still have the culture of like Kennedy's, uh, you know, boy wonders or whatever they were, the, the, the new, uh, the new frontiersman, basically, uh, you still have kind of some of the vestiges of that button down like space age culture, but also the city's becoming more paranoid, more uh, inward looking. And so the way uh, Pacula shoots the film and okay, who who's the DP on this? Is it is it Willis? Um, I want to say it's a big name. Uh photography yes it is yeah it's gordon Gordon willis Willis. it's gordon willis yeah um yeah and so the way the way willis shoots it it's it's a gloomy city uh it it is a city full of like empty streets and like things happening behind closed doors and so i think even though it feels even though if you look at like what actually happens in this movie it isn't a whole lot but if you look at how does the movie feel it does feel like a a a study in like kind of just a, a vague dread, right? A, a faint anxiousness about something being really wrong. And you can't put your finger on it. And in some ways that, that feeling and it's inexactitude is served by the lack of a clear through line in this movie. What are they uncovering? Eh, it's hard to say. What does it mean? I don't know. Well, what can't what do we know for sure? Things are not right. That is what we come out of this. Like something something is really wrong and sick. And I think the movie works on that on that level. Even if it doesn't have much of a narrative arc to it or or any kind of real diagnostic uh perspective on what the ill actually is, it is a thing, it is a it is something that captures a feeling, even if it can't really unpack it. It is v- most of the scenes are either in the newsroom or at night. There are a few daylight scenes uh, in the early going, but especially as the things move on, a lot of the scenes are at night. First, I mean, Deep Throat is, of course, uh, in a, a parking garage. A lot of the meetings with uh, committee underlings, you know, Sloan and Miller and the rest, those are at night. The ones that are successful, where they get something, those are generally at, at, in the evening. Um so it does increasingly become a feeling of us versus the darkness. And yeah. And, and to your point, the newsroom is so always starkly lit. It is never nighttime in the newsroom. It is always bright, that bright overhead lighting. Yeah. The, 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 the fluorescent, the glow of the fluorescence, um, which was, which was the style of the time. Uh, and everything else is, it, it, Everything, there's a, always a little bit of panic. Uh, no one looks, no one looks relaxed ever. In yeah. Um, 
which of course I guess kind of fits the tone. But I mean, if you look at uh, uh, Insider, which we will, there are scenes where people are taking breaks, they're stopping, they're doing things they might find relaxing with friends or family. There's none of that here. It is constant tension. And there is, you know, a sense that these guys are out to get Nixon, uh, which Nixon believed, and he was right. You know, they, the media wanted to take him down for, you know, probably probably some, some good reasons. Um, but there is an animosity here, and they even if they're not sure what's going on, they're sure it's something, and they were going to try and find it. Uh, I still haven't seen uh, the, the the paper, which is a more recent film about the Washington Papers. Those are the, the Pentagon Papers and their publication. Have you, have you seen that? No, um, I'd completely forgotten about that. I wonder how that holds up and compares. That is, um, we'll have to watch that in Spotlight and just close the loop. Not, Although no, you know, not, you know, not, no, 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 not the paper. What's it called? Is it the paper? The paper is a Michael Keaton movie directed by yeah, Ron Howard. Yeah, th- th- that's not not that. Which is a great movie, right? But there's one about the pen. The paper is that the papers. It might just be the Pentagon Papers. Uh, let me let me pull that up. But yeah, but to your point, yeah, uh, it just it's a, it's a film that is. What was my point? It is. A movie that really does try to capture, like you say, there there is a strong tone here. There's a strong feel throughout. Uh, it is a movie full filled with of attention. And yeah, you're right. Just to uh, note, Gordon Willis's amazing work as uh, the director of photography. For people who don't know, uh, he also shot the Godfather films, uh, Paper Chase, and uh, Annie Hall, I think. Yep. Just. I mean, just the a, king of seventies uh, cinema. Yeah, he was just outstanding. Uh, uh, director of photography and he captures just so much uh of i mean even just the the tra- the, the, the the travel shots uh through a darkened mall or um the capitol or a darkened lincoln monument all of these things which have become you know very cliche since yeah. this i mean before this they probably weren't as cliche but since all the president's men you know from 24 to uh, every to, to Pelican Brief, to every you know spy, spy action movie, uh, yeah. They how you shoot these monuments and how you shoot Washington D.C. sends the tone on what you're trying to say about this city and about the government in ways that I mean, you can shoot New York at night and at daytime, and it will all it'll still it'll feel like New York and you have to say other things to make do other things to make New York feel like a character. Washington can feel like a character based purely on how you light it. And yeah. how and where you're situating the lighting. And this is a movie that is full of distrust of institutions, except for journalism. I mean, yes. the, journalism is, is held as a trustworthy institution. Um, there are no newspapers who are telling the Nixon side. The other, the rival paper is the New York Times, and they get mad when the Times scoops them on a story that they think they should have had first. But it's not like they think somebody's, you know, trying to, is, you know, on the take, or there's no evil journalists here. Jour- all the journalists are on the same side, and they're all trying to find the truth. It is the one, it is the noble institution. Um, and everyone else is getting in the way. The CIA is getting in the way. The FBI is getting in the way. Uh, you can't trust the president or the president's men. 
Um, military is kind of left out here, but as far as you know, but, the, but you can trust the, the fifth estate. Yeah, the fourth estate. I think one of the other things that jumped out of me watching this film is um, the movie is very sympathetic to everyone who was part of this rat fucking operation right like yeah. i mean everybody this movie is deeply sympathetic to people who were swept up in it and took part in it and are kind of being left holding the bag for what ultimately was done with nixon's blessing on nixon's orders etc and i do if i i do think if you if you want to look at things that seem questionable about this film from this vantage i think there's two things that jump out of me one is that it is so hesitant to put the finger on anyone who was just following orders. You know, ultimately, like every single one of these people, including the deeply creepy dude who explains what rat fucking is, uh, even he, you know, he sort of has that moment where he where he's talking to Bernstein. He's like, man, I'm I'm a hell of a lawyer and I'm probably going to jail for the rest of my life. By the way, he didn't. He was fine. Uh, but the but the movie like cannot meet one of these people without being like damn it's just so such a shame that all these good people got caught up in this thing but like if they were that good why did they get so caught up in it you yeah, know like he, why are they so deeply he, that guy Segretti yeah like he's as close as they have to comic relief in this movie yeah he's paying off this you know this kind of funny little guy who does funny little things oh yeah I wrote a lying letter about Canadians isn't that hilarious to take down Muskie. And you almost like that he and Bernstein are going for going to go out for a beer later. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, what? <laughs> what is this all about? He ends up at like four, sort of like four months of his term, uh, and then he goes on to have a very good career. Good. Yeah. After that, like, nobody nobody gets punished in America. It seems. Yeah. Like and and every the story breaks in part because like every single secretary they meet is willing to lie down in traffic for the dudes they work for yeah um it's just like they're just every every single like republican functionary is just the best guy and like it's just such a damn shame uh he is being buried uh by this my god this man's about to have a baby oh, and yeah. he's well, about to go to jail yeah. Yeah. uh yeah and, and i think the other thing i would point to as a sign of like this movie's kind of complacency is that uh, the movie is a bit complacent about journalism in that it you know as you sort as you say the the journalists the the newsroom everyone is on the same page uh everyone is on a quest for the truth but at the same time you can see even in the newsroom uh there is this kind of consensus driven thinking that you see in a lot of places right the reason nobody thinks this is a story because like nobody else is on it and ultimately the movie's kind of making the case that that thinking was a dead end uh that not listening to that is why they broke the story but the other thing is you see this obsession with well why did he do it like what you know there's that that whole conversation between bradley and uh one of the other editors at the post where he just can't fathom why nixon who is about to clean up in the 72 election why would he run this risk and in some ways you can kind of see that it's almost dumb luck that these reporters did stumble on the story because the senior leadership couldn't fathom that there would be a story there at all right and unless you could point to well here's how it benefits them 
then clearly there couldn't have been a crime because I don't, I can't fathom the motive. And ergo, all this evidence of a crime doesn't count. And I think that does presage a lot that goes wrong in American journalism institutions. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that we don't have, I mean, here in 76, I'm sure they had it because they had it forever in American uh, journalistic history. There's not a lot of, I'm sure that must have been happening at the time. There, no one's complaining about how this is going to affect their contacts, how this is going to affect their access, how this is going to be burning other sources they have. I'm sure legal this, doesn't exist yeah, in this world. Exactly. I mean, unlike, I mean, that's though this is certainly an issue and has been an issue in uh, popular journalism. You know, since the invention of the printing press, uh, and we see you know stories being buried. Uh, throughout the 50s and 60s and so but something about i I think it it is actually something about the nixon white house that kind of brings out the crusading journalist uh because it's really not an archetype you have much you have the 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 muckrakers in the progressive era who are taking on you know standard oil and taking on big business and breaking up trusts and fighting for uh safe uh labor conditions and all that then you get into the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the idea of the investigative journalist you know, breaking a scandal, breaking a story, isn't really an archetype you have much of. It's certainly not in popular culture. Um, not that I see reflected very much on, if you have, if you have muckraking journalists, or if they're trying to find a scandal, so they want to find something sleazy to sell. These are, you know, the, yeah. they're the yellow journalists trying to sell a scandal, has not really not not necessarily look for a truth, um, so you have things like a lot of uh, the Kennedy stuff, Kennedy administration stuff being kind of buried, uh, because it wasn't seen as something they needed to do, because it did, didn't get got so got in the way of the story they were trying to sell as journalists. And here we have in the Nixon administration. Uh, I guess Nixon was never liked, and he is also a very bad man. Who surrounded himself with a lot of unethical people who are willing to do bad things for him, uh, not especially. And of what they did, Watergate's probably one of the lowest. That's the lowest yeah. Thing I mean, it is like a it is very small potatoes. Um, and I mean, even in the movie, that's when they're talking about even in the film, they're talking about oh, we have to lay out uh, what the news sections are going to be. They're talking about all the other news, and one person, oh yeah, and. Uh, they talk about Nixon going to China or relations with China being regularized. It's like, that's kind of a big deal. And it's just like throwing it in there. So we have to acknowledge that this is going on. That Nixon's being a successful president while all of this stuff is going on in the background. Um, and the idea that you could have a scandal behind what is been a successful presidency, which was rewarded with one of the largest, you know, majorities, uh, electoral majorities, in the 20th century, I think only LBJs and Reagans were bigger, maybe one of Roosevelt's. Uh, it's just astonishing because you think of uh, newspapers today and like would the New York Times be chasing the small story? Those are the small stories that break things open. Yeah. Oh, and the film I was thinking of was The, the Post. The Post with... Uh, the Spielberg movie with Tom Hanks and Russell. Right, Russell. right. Once again, an outstanding cast. 
Yeah. These movies do attract a great cast. But I mean, but in general, All the President's Man is a very optimistic movie about journalism. And you, it does really set, I think a lot of people and a lot of journalists, I think in my generation, or the generation before me at least, uh, would have, you know, watched this and thought, oh, this is what a journalist is about. This is where you get, you know, uh, the cars and the other great uh, journalists of the times um, in the post yeah. uh, for a generation who would be looking for things to not tear down presidents, at least tear down cabinet members. I um Yeah. I mean, I watched this in, uh, you know, journalism one in high school. Uh, you know, this was, this is one of the movies we, we watched. Uh, I think, we set, we set some grounds for some great comparison here with the insider. So I want to, I want to swing over to the insider uh, yeah. here. So I think the insider is. Do, do, you want, do you want to set the stage by explaining what the insider is? If you haven't seen it. Yeah, I was going to. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Uh, so the insider is the story of a 60 minute segment uh, about this character, uh, Jeffrey Wygand, who was a scientist and senior executive for a major tobacco firm. And it is about his, a story he brings to light through 60 minutes about the the truth of what is happening inside tobacco companies. It is not that cigarettes are bad for you. This was already well known. It's been established for years. So what was the scandal of the nineties? And this is what I think this movie does a very good job of establishing um, and it will do do it in a pivotal scene, which we'll get to. But basically, he is somebody who comes forward and highlights the fact that while it is true, the tobacco companies are not intentionally spiking cigarettes with extra nicotine to make them more addictive. They are, however, changing the chemical composition of everything around the nicotine to make the cigarette much more addictive than it would naturally be. And that sort of recasts everything that tobacco companies have been saying for, you know, decades at this point, and also recasts what they've been trying to argue about their approach to selling the product and the risks it entails. This is the this is the truth that the powers that be are going to want to bury in the insider. But I think what makes the insider so interesting and such a impactful film is that the process of getting to that revelation to laying out what the scandal is and unveiling the horrible secret behind the curtain. That is half of the film. The rest of the film is about how all of that, instead of, instead of it bringing about immediate change and completely recasting the conversation and like dominating the media Instead, it is about how that story is almost successfully buried uh, through a combination of journalistic and corporate cowardice, uh, through changing politics at a state level, and through the increasingly sophisticated bare-knuckle tactics of major corporations that have gotten incredibly media-savvy and very good at discrediting people telling uncomfortable truths about their product and about their business model. And so our, the, the story is ultimately about two, arguably three main characters. Uh, one is Al Pacino's character. He's playing a producer for 60 minutes, Lowell Bergman, 
who is a uh, a journalist of what was called the New Left in the 60s and 70s, but he's kind of sold out and left behind his alt-weeklies to come work for 60 Minutes. I'm probably being unkind there. He wasn't just working for like all weeklies. Like he was working for major uh, leftist institutions in the seventies, but nevertheless, he is now sold out and is working for the crown jewel of TV journalism, 60 minutes, but also for a major company, uh, the establishment. He is working with uh, an institution in his own right. Mike Wallace played by Christopher Plummer. And he is an, aging titan of tv news uh a not quite contemporary or 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 not part of the edward r murrow cohort but definitely part of you know the cohort that followed and were inspired by people like that and then the other major character in the story is russell crowe's jeffrey wygand who is an interesting character and i think this is such a tremendous russell crowe performance russell crowe Here's here's my thinking on Russell Crowe, Troy. You can like let, let's talk talk this out. I think what's so fascinating about Russell Crowe is Hollywood badly wanted to be him to be like a leading man, badly wanted him to be Maximus and Gladiator, like times infinity, just like a jacked, badass, charismatic dude. But Russell Crowe, I think, is in some ways he's almost a Tom Hardy esque uh, actor in some ways, and I think the Insider shows him at his best because his Wygand is a really difficult, fussy figure. He is somebody who's difficult to get a handle on. It is difficult to know what makes this man tick. And he's also not particularly likable. And Russell Crowe plays him as somebody who does not want to open up or confide, not even to the camera when he is alone. And I think that makes him a more compelling figure. He is not somebody who plays to, to audiences and not somebody who plays to the camera. He is a man who is very shut in uh, to his own psyche. And so a big part of this movie is about what happens when this character decides to blow the whistle. Why does he do it? And what happens next? I think this is Russell Crowe's best performance uh, in a very, very weird career. He's had a very, very uh, weird career and it's kind of exciting. Uh, this he uh, insider comes out a couple of years after LA confidential a year before gladiator makes him, you know, the biggest star uh, in Hollywood um, for a short time before that gets murdered to death uh, in, in Robin Hood in 2010. Uh, but we have, it, it is a fant- All of the performances are really, I think Christopher Plummer is a really good Mike Wallace. Uh, he plays, you know, he, he, he steps onto the scene. He's being, he's talking to a Hezbollah leader I think it's Hezbollah at the very beginning. Yep. Uh, Bergman has set up this interview with the Hezbollah leader and Wallace steps in and he kind of manufactures a confrontation, I think, with some of the guards sitting yes. too close to uh, the sheikh, the emir, the imam or whatever. And, you know, stands up to them. He's like this by this point, I guess he's a very old man. He, shows that he has brass balls. Neil stand up. Nobody tells me what to do. This is where I sit. I'm in charge of this interview. You take their gun and you go somewhere else. Just to, you know, establish the control in the room and it's going to set the tone for who's in charge there. Uh, and then he opens the interview with a tough question. So are you a terrorist sort of stuff? 
um, you know, typical Mike, people who look like me who grew up watching Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, this is the Mike Wallace who we're told Mike Wallace is. Then we get into the film itself, and Wallace is, you know, he's, yeah, I'm really tough. I'm really interested in strong journalism. But then at the end, he kind of softens a bit, uh, kind of at the climax of the movie, he kind of softens a bit. So well, maybe we can run kind of a softened version of this. You have to understand, we have all of these other masters, and I don't want to go out. Uh, he tells Bergman, I want, don't want to go out as the guy whose story ended up putting CBS out of business. And then you have Berkman, who's kind of, he is also interesting, he's kind of a complicated character as well, because a simplistic yeah. view of this movie would show, would say, oh, he's kind of, he's the good guy, he's the hero, because he wants to tell the story, the true story and the truth all the way through, and he does. He's the only person in the film, I think, who wants the truth, to, besides the lawyers, of course, who wants to get this on camera from the very beginning and the whole thing be out. But he's kind of complicated because he's kind of pushing Wygand further than he wants to go. And Wygand calls him on it. And Bergman kind of puts out, oh, I, I didn't manipulate you. You always wanted to do this. But he yeah. kind of didn't. And, yes. and he kind of didn't always want to do it. I mean, it, I mean, yeah, Wygand's playing, he's playing, Bergman is playing Wygand's better nature here. You know, you got to do this for the kids. You know, think of the children. Uh, what do you think your legacy is going to be? But, you know, this ends up costing Wygand his, well, he already lost his job. But he's he becomes unemployable. Really, he ends up becoming a high school teacher, a good, a very good high school teacher. But he's a high school teacher. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. I thought high school, it's great. Uh, but he loses his marriage, loses his kids. Probably ends up. You know, he has because he breaks the NDA. He ends up losing pretty much any of his severance. We have to pay some of that back. Yep. Um. So there's a lot of complicated stuff here, but Bergman's hands aren't entirely clean. Even if he's doing the good thing, he is causing some damage um, to a very, as you say, an introverted man who wants to do the right thing, but would also like to be left alone. And he can't do both. He can't do the right thing and be left alone. Um, and there's no great swelling music here. There's no great triumphant, ba-ba-ba, the truth's to hold, now it's on TV sort of thing. Even when the truth does come out, it comes out in a backhanded, kind of slimy, weird way, and no one can feel good about it. Yeah, it's it's a complete like hollow victory, and it's one that um, you know Bergman's last scene in the movie, as he you know hands in his re resignation, he explains to Wallace, you know what what got broken here doesn't go back 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 together, yeah. and I think. Yeah, in, in some ways, what you have here as well is a um, it's a bit like Heat in that this is another movie where man is interested in identifying two men who are near the top of their craft, uh, people whose first obligations are to whatever their personal code is as craftsmen, as experts. And this is the thing that the two characters share Bergman is probably the more classical uh, man hero. He's a he's a bit more swashbuckling, uh, but they, they are both people who have the sense of what is most important is how well I do the job that defines me. And Bergman in key scenes, as he is trying to get this thing past CBS lawyers, he does kind of reveal he does tip his hand in a way that 
he is he is constantly trying to tell he's, he gaslights Wygand a little bit, you know, as you as you pointed out, he argues, I didn't I didn't make you do shit. But when when CBS lawyers ask, did, did you perform? Did you commit tortious interference? Did you persuade someone to act against their legal agreements and the interests of their company? And Bergman's response is very simple. In matter of fact, I'm a journalist. This is what you pay me for. And that is completely that that is absolutely true. This is what we should uh, want and expect from journalists. But it also does mean that to a degree, Bergman is a man who makes his living winning people's confidence and causing them in many cases to act against their own self-interest. But the way he has been able to make his peace with that is that the story always gets out that the truth will out. And once the truth is out there and doing its work in the world, that justifies whatever gets broken along the way. And this is a case where that is not going to happen. That every promise and assurance he gives to Wygand at every stage of this thing will basically turn to shit before the end of the film. And Wygand's life will be in many ways ruined uh, from, from what it was. And that is not down to Bergman necessarily, but that the institution Bergman is a part of and this code that is lionized in all the president's men about the profession of journalism, seeing to it that the truth gets out there. Uh, what we see in the insider is suddenly there's a lot of people in journalism who are like, oh, but that could really that could really hurt the bottom line. This could this could entail danger to us that we do not want to run. And so we would it would be far better for us if you simply hadn't even tried to tell the story. And that is the warning that man is trying to sound in some ways that like media companies, like CBS, are now these really huge corporations with multilateral corporate relationships and a lot of dimensions to their business that mean that mean that an operation like CBS News is now trying to cover stories that are absolutely related to its parent company. There are three points in this movie where journalism looks like crap. Uh for I mean there's an obvious one where the story is almost killed, where it's it's uh the produce the executives at uh, 60 minutes and CBS say if you're going to broadcast this, you got to soften it. You got to cut it, cut it back. So, and you can't have him go on camera uh, saying these things. So we've got to neuter the story. That's the one bad thing. Then we have the hit job that Brown and Williamson do, do on, on, on Wigand, the tobacco company. They go after Wigand by planting all these stories, digging up dirt, trying to show him as a wife beater, as someone with a criminal record who can't be trusted. Uh, just to discredit him completely. The third thing is that the story really ends up breaking because it becomes a story of media reporting on media because the yes. New York Times is, because Bergman calls the New York Times and says, I have a story about CBS. It doesn't say I have a story about tobacco. It says, I have a story about CBS. <laughs> and then in the next scene, denies leaking yeah, it. Yeah, because he didn't say anything, right? It's just, I mean, they do the same thing in, uh, in all the president's men where if I don't say, if I don't say anything yes. in all parts of men is I'm, I'm going to say things and hang up if I'm on the wrong track here. It's, 
I'll say something. I'll reply if you're wrong. You just say things. But it's the same idea. I'm not actually saying anything or making you say anything. It's a completely bullshit thing, but they're doing it. But it only becomes the story. The truth only gets out because it's media reporting on media. The scandal is, oh, all these other journalists suck, but we're good. So it becomes, and that's how the story breaks. That's how the story for 60 Minutes Killing the Story gets out. And then they have to bow to the popular pressure and broadcast the full uh, interview. Um, not because it's, not because they had some great epiphany that they were doing the wrong thing, not because of any grandstanding by Mike Wallace, so he does eventually come, come around, but because the New York Times has exposed them as being, you know, kind of liars. Uh, which is, oh, that's great. That's the uh, journalist telling the truth. But it's, it's only because he can tell the truth as media gossiping about other media. Um, which I think is an interesting way this breaks because that has become first that's so much of, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I like media reporting on media. It's a good thing. Everyone should do it. But there comes a point where that's all it is. And I thought it's a very interesting part of this film that it breaks because they leak not the story they're trying to tell to the Times. They leak the fact they can't tell the story they want to tell the Times. They're leaking, they're leaking yeah, a different think... story. They're leaking corporate interference and not tobacco is poison. Tobacco companies are poisoning us even more than you thought. And in some ways, I think, crucially, they don't even have the tobacco company doesn't even kill the story. No, it is the possibility that they could. It is CBS's legal is now um, like we run into this a lot. Uh, you know, this is a conversation you have yeah. advice um, and I've had other outlets as well where every story is always a risk reward thing, right? Like what is, you know, you have to like, what exposure does this produce in terms of libel or slander? Uh, depending on what your medium you're in, uh, what exposure does it produce for a civil case for those uh, for those causes? And then how buttoned it down are your sources? How much can you stand behind it and likely win a story like that uh, versus, you know, and, and that's a complicating factor. And then cutting across all of it is and what is the value of, of running this risk? Uh, you know, if it's if it's not a very big story, um, there's a lot of stories that just aren't going to get told because that calculation is going to come out and it's like, you know what? This is small potatoes and it is not worth us running that story. And that threshold has changed a lot, by the way. Um, you know, in a post Gawker world, that threshold has been raised considerably for when a story is worth telling. And that has served a lot of people really poorly. Um, but I think the, the other thing that this movie sort of captures is, is this moment where the lawyers for news organizations flip from having this sort of defensive mindset where, well, how thoroughly can we stand behind the story and like fight it all the way to court to a more proactive mindset where how can we prevent a a case from ever yeah. occurring against us? And this is what she's saying is we don't want to run the story because if you run it, there is a possibility we could get fucked with. Yeah. Could they, what she doesn't get into is could we win that case? And the answer is probably, but she doesn't want to get into it because in general, like corporate lawyers do not want to fight these cases. You know, trials are risky. 
and so what what kind of gets them here is not that Brown and Williamson sends their teams of lawyers to to go kick ass and take names. It is that CBS just doesn't want this exposure on its books while it is contemplating a sale of the entire company. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's the whole threat of lawsuit. The whole, I mean, they, they talk about there's first interference. There's NDAs. There's I mean, NDAs of course are so common now. Or at least you know. Yeah, everyone's under an NDA, and they're all they're all talking. Yeah, I mean, um, it, NDAs. Well, the the NDAs that we make you sign, you playing playing games. Those are good. Uh, <laughs> but the other NDAs are, are all bad. Um, and you know, Yen's under all of these NDAs, and they're very strict penalties. One of the early scenes, he hasn't even talked to anybody yet. Really, um, probably someone yep. saw him uh, meet Bergman because he's called in first just to technically read some documents and translate them into English out of science ease. Um, and I guess maybe he spa followed or seen or something. It's never outright stated, but he comes in, he's called back in to his, to, uh, ground to the tobacco company again, after he'd already been dismissed. And they're saying, we're going to change your NDA. Now I'm not sure they can legally yep. do this, but they're saying, look, we have to add some new terms to this because we're taking on a lot of more risk here. And he's under a lot more pressure of what he can possibly lose um, because he loses everything because they were covering because his kids were in private school and he had this huge house and he was paid very, very well. One child is chronically yeah, ill. One child needs needs really good health insurance because she's got very bad asthma and there's huge risks uh, for him personally. And this NDA is held over his head and, the question of him violating it is one of the issues. And then again, it's a tortious interference, which always struck me as a really weird tort. Yep. Um, I, 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 it pops up from time to time. I'll see it. And I'm, every time it's, it's kind of like Rico. It's one of those things that people cite, but never understand and never trust anybody who's studying tortious interference. Just never, it always, it always yeah. sounds it, wrong the way they're using it. But what do I know? Um, but um, we, have, we have the whole, but none of said, none of these things come to pass. The NDA is never enforced. There isn't a case about tortious interference. We have one courtroom scene, and it's Wigand on the stand in Mississippi, because Mississippi's filing a lawsuit against uh, the tobacco companies to get some uh, Medicare money back or something. And Wigand's on the stand there uh, with. Um, God, what is that actor's name? He's one of my favorites. Oh, he's got um, a great McGill. name. B -b 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 Rip Torn. Bruce McGill. Bruce McGill has been like, he's a guy with a mustache. He's been like a thousand. He was in um, the third the Indiana Jones movie. He was in MacGyver. He's been Lincoln. He's been a lot of other stuff. One of my favorite little character actors. He's apparently a big time Republican, but in spite of that, I really, uh, really like the guy. And he he's standing up and he's yelling uh, at the other attorney and it's a really good courtroom scene where he's the uh tobacco company's attorney just trying to shut everything down and he's saying look this is a deposition you can't shut things down here i get to ask my questions and he gets to answer them though he knows the deposition might end up vanishing altogether because that gets closed off or privately uh and Combe fior who's a, a giant of the canadian stage uh as richard scruggs is also a very glorious he explains oh he's incredible he's one of my feasts if you ever haven't seen him on stage, he's just amazing. Uh, he's also been in, uh, he's in Slings and Arrows as the uh, weirdo cult guy, cult marketing guy. I, I really love Colm Fior. 
Um, and he is Richard Scruggs, puts on his Southern accent, and he explains all the legal stuff that's going on. Here are the risks, you know, if you come down here, here are the things you can, the, because it's a different jurisdiction, things in Kentucky might not apply, but if you go back, you're under risk. He explains everything very, very well. So as far as, this is a film that explains things in ways that All the Prince Men does not. You always know what the stakes are, and you always know who is getting hurt. And things, everybody's kind of, I mean, Wygand's getting it from all ends. Bergman ends up resigning because he can't work there anymore. Wallace's reputation is kind of shot. It gets shot even more later when uh, some Me Too stuff comes out. Um, but it's just really just an outstanding film at explaining all the pressures of a mo- on a modern, first of telling the truth through journalism, telling truth through the law, and how modern corporate media kind of screw themselves by getting too big by this pressure to expand and be acquired and be of value, um, they constrain the stories they can tell. Uh, and you see this, you know, with uh, cable news networks. I mean, I remember the first time I watched CNN, I think, was the first Gulf War, which you were yes. too young to remember. No, I remember I remember the, CBN, the CNN 1991, broadcast. 1991. Before that, CNN was kind of a small thing. Uh it was, you know, Ted Turner's little hobby project. Uh, but then, you know, the first Gulf War happens and it's 24-hour news and it's good, solid news uh, pretty much constantly. And then, you know, with everything, cable news has changed a lot. There are more cable news networks. Their ratings are more important than ever. Uh, advertising rates are more important than ever. So you have things like... Uh, during the 2016 campaign, everybody would show all of President Trump's, then candidate Trump's uh, speeches in full because it drew an audience, even though there was a no, very little news value and they weren't doing that for Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders or anybody else. But because right. of the ratings and the value, they would do it. And this would increase the value of their companies. Um, you have, you know, 60 Minutes has had other uh, scandals, I'm sure, since then. There's and the New York Times, and I mean, you, you have Amazon owns the Washington Post, and you can't say that doesn't cause a problem for the Washington Post's reporting on on how far they can go on on, on tech issues. Bezos might be a relatively, you know, pliable monarch uh, in some things, uh, but you know that's going to cause a little bit of fear and caution in the Post legal department. Um, and I think the insider shows how many people can get hurt. I mean, Wigan was going to get hurt no matter what, but the fact that he hurt himself and then he was told, well, maybe we can't tell your story anyway. It was like a double betrayal. And there's just so much anger in this movie. And it is once again, just beautifully shot. I mean, I mean, these are two movies about, you know, reporters. I mean, this got a justifiable, Oscar nomination for cinematography. And you wouldn't think, you know, I mean, as soon as I was watching, I said, wow, this is just a great use of light, great use of tracking shots. I mean, please tell me that somebody would notice this. And it's not just me geeking out about cinematography again. But no, uh, Dante Spinati did get an Oscar nod for this. I mean, this is a movie that got seven nominations and zero wins. And that pisses me off. Yeah, it's, um, and there's so many, like, I think just, 
there are so many little moments like a, a movie a moment that really landed with me uh this most recent rewatch is after russell crowe has been fired after yan has been let go there's the sequence of him coming home to his house um you know in the afternoon it's a beautiful day at this not quite a mcmansion but in the mcmansion neighborhood right but he's coming home to this beautiful home in kentucky and it's this idyllic life and he's just sitting on the secret which is that he's been fired and he's had they're going through this normal evening at home and uh you know chat with the family and it's just it it I think it, it captures so well this quiet dread of modern life, right? Of like like how fragile all of this can be uh, the minute you lose your position, yeah. the minute you lose your status. And there's that horrible like, you know, he contrives to make his wife go outside to the car so that he can have a conversation with her, not in front of the yeah. kids. And he she sort of notices that all his office stuff is packed up in the car. And she asks what this means, but she already knows. But she asks, you know, to confirm it. What's what's going on? He says, I I was fired today. And immediately she doesn't handle the moment. Well, And I think this is the movie does not villainize her for this. But she is, as as Bergman says later, these are ordinary people under extraordinary pressure. And this is the start of it. Um, Even though there's nothing here that she can say that, well, that he doesn't already know. She sort of begins uh, just spiraling about what does this mean for their ability to continue living in their home? What does this mean for the child's medical care? Like, what are they going to do now that he's lost this impossibly uh, lucrative job? And he answers, you know, he'll, he'll figure it out, but all of that is incumbent on him not becoming a whistleblower. Um, and I think this, this points it to, to one of the other things, which is that, in general, Michael Mann movies are about badasses, right? Usually that's that's what they're about is just badass dudes doing cool shit, uh, whether they're frontiersmen in, you know, the French and Indian War or whether they are high end bank robbers in the 90s. But I think one of the things in this movie is about like what makes what is moral courage? What does it require? And there's that great scene uh, where Scruggs unpacks it. He tells the story about how he used to be a carrier pilot uh, flying A6s. And he, he, he says to he says to Wygan, but what you're going through goes on day in and day out, whether you're ready for it or not, week in, week out, month after month. Whether you're up or you're down, you feel assaulted psychologically, you're assaulted financially with his own special kind of violence because it's directed at your kids. What school can you afford and how will that affect their lives? You're asking yourself, will that limit what they may become? You feel your whole family's future is compromised, held hostage. And it's a remarkable speech. It's a really unexpected thing in the context of a Michael Mann film. The, the writing is usually good, but it's you don't hear this kind of acknowledgement that, hey, people holding severance packages, people holding health care over your head is a form of violence, right? The ability to like have those hands close around your throat is a form of terror. and this movie is trying to get at that. It really does establish the stakes for a guy like Wygand, which is that his whole family jumps into the abyss with him uh, because he isn't an individual actor. This entire system means that all of these people are made vulnerable uh, to whatever retribution his employer wants to unleash. 
Yeah, and they and then they and then they did and they go for it. I mean, they the uh, character assassination uh, they wield on him that, that that they try to wield on him. Um, some of it leaks out. I mean, the Wall Street. It's, I mean, and they don't. They're not doing it through you know the the Daily Sun or the New York Post. They're going to be laundering all this smear stuff through the Wall Street Journal. So these are like high powered people coming after him and uh, trying to, you know, tear down his character. And at that point, he's already lost so much. Uh, and then, you know, they're coming for his, his his name itself. They're coming for his very reputation, everything that he's he's doing this to do the right thing. And he's already lost his family. And now they're going to come for this. And he's just, that's kind of, that's when Wigan snaps, kind of. That's when, Berg, that's when he, he goes yeah. after Bergman, when he realizes he really has, you know, he's, yeah, he's been one man, been brought, been pushed under the wheel of the capitalist system, of the powers that be. Um, I mean, this isn't, this isn't Canada where his health care is going to be guaranteed, no matter what. Uh, he needs to have all of these yeah. things. Um, and there is no safety. Um, and there's no, there are very rarely medals for telling the truth. Um, and there's yeah. never any even after the, I mean, this movie comes out and it's oh great the tobacco company is exposed but there's no sense even after all of this and they go through the epilogues and you know the lawsuits and all of this there's no sense that that was worth it which is kind no. of a weird thing to say right because it says poisoners are exposed on national television uh, an already reeling villainous company is brought down even further. But there's no triumph. Yeah. There's no sense of, wow, that was a great thing. We're really glad he did it. Uh, it does a really good job of showing how there is such a price to be paid. I think of a reality winner uh, who came forward with you know more stuff on the government and was kind of burned uh by her journalistic source, and now she's in prison. And there's going to be no if even if she gets commuted, there's no reward for her. Um, so you cut out. You return at reality winner. Yeah, reality or, winner. Um, yeah. Uh, there's no prize, and that happens so many times. I mean, there's there's this myth that we have. I think in many ways championed by by a lot of uh, uh, media celebratory films and TV and stories that, oh, once the truth is told, kind of like all the president, everything will come to an end and people go off to great careers and there's happiness. But you look at how many of the scandals and stories and people don't, people don't tell these secrets and these stories and then get rewarded for them. You think of all the Me Too no. stuff where they, oh, they're just doing it for the, for the fame. They're doing it for the money. There's no fame. There's no money. There's only abuse. There's only and many of the people who, unless you committed truly un like forgettable and unforgivable crimes and got caught red-handed, most people are implicated in these things, especially if it's not involving like physical violence, yeah. right? Especially if it just involves like incredible malfeasance that has real harm in the world, but your hands stay clean. Those people will, in general, be allowed to not even do a walk of shame. Yeah, you know, they will often just like fade out of the headlines for a moment and then appear somewhere else in a very similar role. Yeah, I mean, even 
even people who committed g g g many grotesque crimes. You think of the, the wave of pardons in West Germany in the 1950s and 60s. People who were sentenced like 15, 20 years for crimes during the war. Ah, five years is enough. Welcome yeah. to the West German civil service. Um, but so you can get away with a lot. People will forgive a whole lot of sins. And, you know, if you step forward, I mean, how many of the Brown and Williamson executives moved on to other tobacco companies? Probably most of them. I think that, yeah. Wall, that Wall Street Journal reporter who was digging up that dirt, he wasn't fired or penalized. He was just doing his job trying to find uh, following the smear merchants. Um, many of the Watergate people went on to very good careers. G. G, G Gordon Liddy thrived. He made he made a career out of being a Watergate criminal. Um, whereas, you know, the people who exposed it, who exposed it, you know, the, the journalists, but anybody who told the truth to the journalists, none of them went on to great glories or sold books. Um, many of them got very depressed. <laughs> well, and I, and I think in some ways, um, you know, the, the question of like what motivates a character, like so, to a degree, these are both films about motivation yeah. in some ways. And I think it's implicit in all the president's men, because what are, what are the kids? What, what are, what motivates Woodward and Bernstein? They're hungry and they're, they're ambitious. It does. You don't even get the sense necessarily. They give a shit what the story yeah. is. It's just important that they get it. They are guys who are just out to, to make their name. And in a large to a large degree, like Woodward spent the rest of his career cashing in on that name and that reputation. Yeah. Did, did he ever do anything investigative like this again? No, he became a stenographer. Yes. Of whatever the consensus of the moment was. We, you know, we talk about his Bush trilogy, but it's not a trilogy. It's just him reacting. There's no cohesive vision. It's just him like trying to hit a moving target of consensus about how Bush's term in office and the war on terror is going. That's what he does. Whereas I think in the insider to a degree, this question of like what motivates somebody like Wygand, he already knows going into it, that stories like this do not end well for do for, for characters like him. And so in some ways, the thing that move like that ultimately proves to be the thing that motivates him while he does have some real genuine like pangs of conscience, his major motivator throughout all of this is that he's kind of a spiteful guy in some ways. And the company's attempts to like play the heavy with him blow up spectacularly because they move him to carry this so much further than he or Bergman ever really envisioned at the start. And I think that's kind of a, that's a bad sign, right? If There's also a sense that he feels like he wasn't appreciated there. He had all of these ideas yes. for how to make their tobacco, you know, safer to, you know, how they could still do their product. He had all this great science and they were not interested in that. They didn't care about his science. At least not yeah. that science. I mean, he was not doing, that's kind of why he was fired. He just wouldn't play ball with them. So there's this resentment towards uh brown and williamson there's never a sense that he he never had a sense that he misses his job that he misses doing what he did like he's, he was a scientist who did a lot of things and just ended up in tobacco um so his motivations are you know there's some magnanimity there but also yeah you're right there's some bitterness but i think the parent i think the the wygand parallel in all the president's men 
aren't Woodward and Bernstein, but it's Deep Throat. Yeah, right? that's because he's point. the he's not invested. He's the one who has a story to tell, and we never get his motivation. There's never any real sense why this guy is doing this. Besides, there's a, there's an inkling he just does not like these people. He's and Fell was another Republican, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, ultimately these were his people. He just couldn't fucking stand. Well, he, them. He, he was also passed over for FBI director. Uh, right. But we don't get. But none of that's in the movie. So talking of using the, the film as text, there's just a sense that he doesn't like these people. He never talks about it as some great and grievous crime. He's never talked. Never talked about patriotism. Haldeman creeps him out because he reenacted that scene from Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, exactly. There's never sense. He never talked about patriotism. Never talks about the law. Talks about these guys are doing some shady shit. You should probably look into it. But there's no Wygand at least comes closer, yes. right? Because he talks about the, um, you know, the the, the head of uh, Johnson Johnson was it uh, recalling Tylenol, yeah. um, and that's what a CEO should do. Yeah, and I, I love that scene where they're they're sitting in the car. I love everything about how Bergman gets onto him, yeah. right? Which again, like a picture of just something weird. I think this is this is similar. Just a reporter encounters something weird which is as you as you know as you mentioned earlier bergman gets some completely different whistleblower we never learn about sends in this shit about tobacco companies doing studies on people falling asleep smoking cigarettes and setting themselves on fire by the way huge cause of of death uh in in that era uh so absolutely an important story to chase down but he just goes to he just gets wygan's name from a contact in government service as somebody who can help unpack tobacco company research and is yeah. available now to, to do, do this. But it is when he calls Wygan's house and introduces himself as Lowell Bergman from 60 minutes. And instead of anything else happening, his wife says he doesn't want to talk to you completely unprompted. He doesn't want to talk to you. And then Wygan himself completely loses his cool. And again, like tries very hard to evade any contact with Lowell that Lowell living in a world of limitless journalistic resources can basically hunt this guy down in Kentucky to figure out why he is so hesitant and leery about talking to a reporter. And it sets up, I think a great scene where they end up chatting about how did Wygand end up in a career like Brown and Williamson and it's almost like he's asking it's this great confessional scene right where it's almost like he's asking absolution in some ways from bergman he knows that he took the money ultimately he took the money and he knew you know hanging over the door um and i think man says this it said this in an interview he gave about the film is you know Wygand, why Wygand is an interesting hero. He says the tobacco companies hang a sign outside the door saying, you know, wanted scientists without conscience. And Wygand answered. So why did he answer? And why is he having regrets now? Yeah, it's, I mean, there are so many great scenes uh, in this movie, and especially with uh, Pacino and Crow. Uh, interacting off each other either over the phone and in the car but yeah that scene you mentioned where he calls that or uh bergman pacino bergman calls the house and they end up he ends up talking to wagan via fax you know sending yes. faxes back for like oh my god that talk that took me back uh i haven't seen a fax machine in years 
Uh, and it's just faxes of, no, I can't talk to you. I will never talk to you. And this is, you know, a few years after uh, all the tobacco executives went up to Capitol Hill and lied to Congress uh, about all of these things. So this is clearly what the Wygand family, but Mrs. Wygand and uh, Mr. Wygand are thinking of. Oh, no, 60 Minutes wants to talk about that again. Um, and he just has his, he has his NDA. He knows he can't say anything. Um, but yeah, by even just denying there's a story and denying there's anything to talk about, it sends a signal, oh, there's something here I should look at. And that sends Bergman uh, down to Kentucky. And, you know, it's it's just such a great story. And I, I do like, I mentioned this with all the President's Man, how it never stops. I like how this movie sometimes pauses for bits of, here's Wygand and his kids, his two daughters. Yes. Here is Bergman and his wife and their kids. Uh either reading the paper on the bed or they're on vacation. <clears throat> they're often talking about work and it's in the background, like all couples. We talk about work. Um, but never in any great detail, since this is a bit of a pause. They have they have lives that aren't a part of this, but it's still going to be caught up in the maelstrom. But it's Wygans that gets completely melted down, even though you know Bergman ends up resigning and losing his job. But his world still stays pretty much the same. He yep. still gets to go on vacation with his wife and plan the next thing at some great beach. And there's a Wygand doing a chemistry experiment in front of a bunch of bored 10th graders. Yep. Um, which again, I thought history high school is great, but he was a, well, I think even in this film, I think it is again, one of the um, strengths of Crow's performance is that Wygand does seem like a man at peace doing yeah. those lectures I mean, he, right he, that he like he wants he wants to do it he steps in this i want to teach i want to i it's something first thing he needs the job and it's a good union job um he ends up being teacher of the year uh in kentucky so he's apparently very good at teaching chemistry but yeah there's a he does end up he looks more comfortable in a classroom than he does anywhere else in the movie yes i don't know how much of that is a show for the kids but there's never any sense that he's, I mean, even it's clearly he's losing a lot of income. He doesn't have security he had when he was a vice president of a tobacco company. He does have some comfort with what he's doing. There's no pressure on him. He feels like that's not weighing on him as much. Though it's certainly a step, the, he doesn't feel like it's a step down. It's not a step down ethically, but financially. And I think the movie does send a signal, you know, this guy had it all, and now he's doing this. Though he's happy, oh, yeah. he's happy doing this, and he's good doing this. But right, but it, yeah, but it shouldn't have taken his, him being willing to completely martyr himself, and that is what it took. Yeah, and I think la the last thing I'll raise here is that in all the president's men, there's the sense that the government might do something untoward that you're probably being surveilled. You're probably being watched, but nothing ever actually happens, right? We get, we, we get Woodward freaking yeah. himself out in a parking garage, yeah. uh, you know, running off down the street and then looking at the empty street. And somehow it's more terrifying than if something was there, all good stuff. Um, but this is kind of the, the space that movie inhabits is this sense that like, hey, someone might have it in for you. You might be being watched. I think one of the other things in the insider and mind you, it's never been, I guess, pinned down what happened with with Wygand and his family. But the implication of this film certainly seems to be that once the tobacco company began to worry that Wygand was not 
sufficiently warned off uh, his course of action, they begin acting in ways that are just completely self-defeating and basically unhinged, right? Like just random threats, uh, you know, a bullet in the mailbox, a shut the fuck up, we will kill you email, yeah. uh, just it completely out of control things uh, that don't even serve the company's interests well, but do give the sense of these people truly feel that they can operate with impunity. They feel that they are bigger than state governments, certainly. Um, I mean, but the, 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 this, the FBI thinks Wyatt is doing it to himself. Yeah. And, you know, factually speaking, we don't know one way or the other. And they are just so blunt and obvious threats. Uh, maybe he was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not that I think he was, but I mean, there's certainly that possibility that the bluntness. But then, equally plausible is is equally plausible as what Lowell says, where it's like you guys could be in the pocket. Like, he, you know, he points out FBI, yeah. that a lot of federal officials go to work for corporate America as soon as they're done, and that's as true in the FBI as anywhere yeah. else. Uh, you know, how much can you trust people who ultimately? may someday want a six-figure job with the people who are currently threatening. Yeah, exactly. And there's this whole thing that, they have, that the FBI is corrupt down there because, you know, it's a state office, uh, so they'll know all the big wigs there. Uh, I mean, we have in the Mississippi law case that uh, Scruggs is filing, uh, the attorney general of Mississippi is going after the tobacco companies. The governor wants the attorney general to drop the whole thing. Yes. Uh, he says, oh, the governor wants to, to stop this. Uh, showing there's a division within the states because they don't want to go after tobacco because that's big money. Um, so there's, there's, there's institutions. There are no good institutions. The, 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 the law is used to penalize you in here. It penalizes journalists and it penalizes individuals. Journalists are corporate lackeys. There may be some good journalists, but they're often going to be using you for their own interests. Uh, the government you can't trust uh, because they're in the pockets of tobacco in many cases. And if someone lies to the government, they'll probably let them get away with it. You can't trust the police because they might be in the pockets of uh, government as well. Marriages fall apart under the slightest pressure of death threats, losing a job, and investigations. Yeah. Oh, such cowardice. Uh, I I probably would have left years ago if, if Wykin was my husband. He just seemed very very intense. Uh, well, there's this the whole. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic movie and it's kind of depressing, but it's just so beautifully made. I love it. Yeah, and I think it it holds up both as a work of entertainment and far more as a portrait of American media and like the corporate ethos we we exist in. Uh, I think the insider is prescient about what is coming in media and its ability to tell the truth in a way that all the president's men is deeply unsophisticated and Pollyanna-ish. Okay, so what is the journalist story since the insider you want to see on film? Ooh. Um, you can't say something that's already been done. Like you can't say WikiLeaks. That's been done yeah. badly, very badly. Bad. But uh, I was thinking about this. As I was watching. Okay. Was, oh boy. Story that I, want. I know what it okay, is. What's that? And it will have another depressing ending. Uh, the Panama Papers. Yes. Like yeah. 
massive, massive like revelation about uh, global capital reserves and money laundering and just incredible stockpiles of wealth and the amount of basically legal tax fraud uh, that exists in the world and entire countries that are set up to facilitate it. And one, no one gives a shit about the story. Like it never like, yeah, it was never even headline news for more than a minute. Um, and then, you know, the journalist most um, involved in breaking the story is blown up by a car bomb in Malta um, after the story dies down and nothing is ever done. Like, for me, it is absolutely like, you know, it, you'd almost say the, the scale keeps raising, right? Yeah. Like, you know, all the president's men. Oh, this is a you know, it's a it's about the American presidency. But it's a very local story in some ways. The insider is a national level story of like, you know, corporations and national media completely like, you know, quailing uh, from any kind of a fight. Panama Papers is kind of the scale at which the financialization of everything has allowed corporations and the ultra wealthy to operate at and the way the world's kind of been reshaped to facilitate their activity. And no one can be made to pay attention. And one of the people involved in telling telling this important truth is killed with impunity. Yeah, that probably would have been, would have been my, my pick, too. It is such a huge story that has it's not even that old. Uh but it's yeah. kind of I mean it's 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 what 2016? I mean that is so recent. And yeah. so much money is being stolen uh from poor countries and rich countries. And really a couple of firms got shut down. But beyond that, and maybe I, th- I think it's a story that doesn't come because it's very complicated. Yeah. And, you know, it's who has time to, you know, really get into these? I mean, look at this. And uh, I mean, the, I mean, the only similar story, I think, would be the, the, the Cambridge Analytica stuff in the UK and the Brexit campaign stuff. Yeah. Uh, the uh, illegal donations, illegal funding, and all of that. Uh, Carolyn Callawalder has been the lead journalist there. You know, she's faced a lot of attacks and has lost a lot of money and lawsuits and gone up against some very powerful people. And some of her investigations have been borne out. Some of it hasn't. Uh, but in general, it's just, you know, one of these bleak stories about global global powers controlling things. And not the not the ones who have been tr- traditionally been suspected, uh, and it's just very very uh, sad that you know governments decide we're just not going to look at that, we're not going to investigate, and journalists and newspapers make decide this is a one day story. Uh, I mean the Panama Papers, I think that they got a week, um, and just the story's yeah. kind of fallen off the fallen off everywhere and uh, even when um, the Maltese journalist was murdered the story became about her murder as it should but why she was murdered kind of stopped being a story like, isn't this something we should be investigating a little more or should be pushing a little harder in um, but apparently not you know it's 
we'll get rid of the president, get rid of the prime minister of Malta and arrest some gangsters and no one will speak of it again. It's all very depressing. Yeah. Yeah, it it is. It is, especially because I think as the scale of malfeasance increases, you know, as you pointed out, the complexity increases and it becomes harder and harder both to make people understand what you're talking about and also to explain it in a way that does not make you sound like a madman. Yeah. It, it like it becomes genuinely difficult when you talk about these things to not sound like you are conspiratorial or proposing the existence of something like the Illuminati. Uh, it, it's it's difficult because the scale of these things is so incredible that if you were to tell a reasonable person what you think is going on and indeed what is going on, you would sound like somebody who is like wearing tinfoil on the inside of their hat. It's all. It's depressing. <laughs> but I mean, you just need that, more insiders. I mean, uh, when I was watching these, uh, my partner mentioned Spotlight. This is certainly another movie. Uh, that's in this vein about the Boston Globe taking on the Catholic Church. Uh, I I really like it. I think it holds up. I mean, it's relatively more. It's relatively recent. It holds up very well. Uh, and Michael Keaton uh, again, as he's also he's in the Post and he's in Spotlight. I guess he's playing editors uh, to the end of days. Uh, I highly highly recommend Spotlight. I have not seen the Post. Any other films in this line you would recommend? Um, not quite this line, but I already alluded to it. I think the paper is one of the best journalism movies, uh, out there. It is about just a single day news cycle at a New York tabloid, um, trying to cover a high profile murder case. And it's a really good, it's a really fun movie. Uh, and it's also a really good snapshot of the news business in the nineties. Look at this cast. Dude, it's unreal. And there, there, there's Jason Robards again. Yeah. Catherine O'Hara, my favorite. And also Jason no. Alexander. Oh, well. No, he's perfect in I'm it. Sure he like, is. he shows up in exactly the right way. Um, yeah, he is. Like, Jason Alexander plays Chekhov's gun in that in that movie. <laughs> uh, it's, it's terrific. This is the summer of George. Yeah. <laughs> God, all right, now we're really dating ourselves. Yes. Uh, all right, um, but I think both movies here worth talking about, but I think in terms of like a movie people should go out and see, like, I mean, Insider is, remains a, a, a classic and an important film uh, that, that more pe- that should be probably a bigger part of our collective memory of Michael Mann's work uh, than it is. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, of the Mann movies I've seen, I think The Insider is my clear favorite. Um, I mean, the yeah, I could say nice things about about Heat, uh, of course, which is also a standing in Last of the Mohicans. Um, and Ali, I guess, though it's too long. Um, Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, you could do a whole... you got to find a movie to pair that with. But uh, Oh, we're going to talk about it. But yeah, it, it, is, it is, if nothing else, at least it gives us a good fucking siege scene, which turns out to be really hard. Yes, well, yeah. And we're not going to talk whether there are any strategy things about journalism, because there isn't. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, yeah. So uh, uh, I I think you're right. Uh, People should definitely check out the Insider. It is an outstanding. It is just the the probably the best movie I've seen this fall. 
Oh, I'm glad I could uh, prompt you to to give it a give it another look. That will do it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. This episode was produced by Liana Hafer. Three moves ahead is hosted on the Idle Funds Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. That also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. We'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Troy, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.